Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. One of the things I try to do on this podcast is introduce you to some writers who you do not know. Now, you're familiar with their work, and you've seen their names flash on and off the screen, but you don't really know who they are. And yet, they're very interesting, they have great backstories, and one of those writers is my guest this week and next week, because we spoke for an hour and I don't want you to miss a thing, Howard Michael Gould is his name. He is a TV writer. He's also a TV showrunner, and he ran for a a period of time, Sybil. Yes, uh, the Sybil Shepherd Show, the notorious Sybil Shepherd Show, and he's got some stories about that. He's also a a screenwriter and a playwright and a novelist. Uh, His new book, Below the Lines comes out next week, and it is the sequel to his first book in a series called Last Looks, and that is soon to be a major motion picture starring Mel Gibson, and Howard did the screenplay. So a lot to talk about, including an unbelievable association that Howard had with Mike Nichols. That's part one of my chat with Howard Michael Gould this week on Hollywood and Levine. Okay, so first of all, I have to ask you, is there another Howard Gould? Because you use your middle name. <laughs> is, there, is there a reason for it? Yeah. Or did you love Mary Tyler Moore when you were a kid? Why do you use your middle name? Oh, oh, oh. In the credit. That's actually a great question. So first, I was going by Howard Gould. And the Writers Guild East, where I joined, uh-huh. I had to change my membership, and they changed Haywood Gould, who's a, <laughs> a drama writer. Okay. And then the other thing is that everybody assumed that all the things I was writing were being written by Rhoda's father, Harold Gould. <laughs> and I realized okay. that, you know, this is just one of those <laughs> crappy, generic Jewish names. You know, like like I had an agent, Danny Greenberg, and I my papers never came for the longest time on a project. <laughs> and it was, they were sending it to two other Danny Greenbergs before they figured out him. So I, I needed something. Gotcha. Okay, I'm going to talk about another Michael now. And as a playwright, I am so envious of this. You wrote a play, 
and we can get into the play throughout the the podcast. But I mean, every every playwright dreams that a, a great director might want to do their play. Your play, Mike Nichols <laughs> wanted mm-hmm. to do your play. How did that come about? Well, well can I say the, the greater dream would have been if, if Michael Nichols had actually done the right. play. Yes. As opposed well, to the, years of wanting to do it and, and, and being in my life. Which and is, that's which show business. Totally wonderful. Yes, that's, yes, that's show yes, business. That's, that's as good an attachment to something that never happened as you can have, <laughs> which is sort of uh, emblematic of my career, basically. But, True. Um, so I wrote this play... And I was sitting in uh, in a movie theater watching Primary Colors. And I wish I could remember the scene, but there just was a moment where the light went on where I went, I bet this guy would get it. I mean, he'd always been one right. of my heroes. Mike Nichols but there directed was just, that movie. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there was just some moment like that. And I called my uh, feature agent and I said, you guys represent at CAA. You guys represent Mike Nichols, don't you? And could you get him a play? He said, easiest thing in the world. He said, uh, and the good news is he reads everything himself. So there's no filter. The bad news is he reads everything himself. So it might be <laughs> three years or never. Right. And about a month later, and Mike hadn't done a play in six years. He had retired in his mind from the theater. He didn't announce it. So we didn't right. know this. But about a month later, I'm sitting uh, playing Nintendo with my son, and the babysitter walks in with the phone and says, do you know a Mike Nichols? <laughs> and I, I sort of reach carefully for the phone. And I say, hello. And in that great voice, I hear, uh, that's my second favorite question. <laughs> and I said, uh, what's your favorite? And he says, what is this regarding? <laughs> and that was the start of this very cool kind of mid-career mentorship that happened for a couple of years. And he was calling to say that uh, Brian Lord, his agent, had given him the play and that he loved it and he'd been trying to figure out how to reach me for two weeks. And in the meantime, he had set up a reading in New York and I might want to come. Wow. Wow. And so who was in the reading? Who were some of the actors that he assembled? Candace Bergen, Alfred Molina, Hank Azaria, a couple others. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So I I come to New York and and Mike and I have this long lunch and he's incredibly charming. And, you know, I mean, he's he's one of the, you know, when you meet stars and they just say hi, you know, occasionally, like Jennifer Lopez did this. You say, hi, I'm Howard. And she'll say, hi, I'm Jennifer. Right. And you go, that was yeah, at the I peak know. of Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. And you go, you know what? That's cool. And Mike was like David that. Hyde yeah. Pierce does the same thing. It's, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But most of them don't. And I know. You know? But why know. should they? Right. But that was what Mike was like. And we'd spent the two hours. And then the next night, he and Candace and I saw the play Art and then went to dinner afterwards. And now I've spent four or five hours with him. And the next day was the reading. So I was completely comfortable until I walk into the conference room that he had. Arranged. special for these mm-hmm. things arranged for him and there's two people there and it's mike and elaine may oh my and all of a god. sudden my palms start sweating <laughs> oh my <laughs> god so i just wasn't expecting that somehow <laughs> wow yeah uh, hopefully the reading went well there was a moment where i look up and the two of them catch each other's eye with this sort of this is really good look uh-huh. and and i I wish, again, I wish I could remember what like the moment of the play was. I did. Way. That was yeah. what I thought. In yeah. the moment, I yeah. thought, I could die now satisfied <laughs> as a writer because if this is all I get, 
I'll be fine. Right. Which is good because it, in a way it was all I got. <laughs> so, but, but then, th- then um, there was a day you told me that he came out to Los Angeles and was looking for possible venues and you picked him up at the airport and yeah. just spent the whole day driving <laughs> nickels around L.A. Yeah, because he didn't know any of the theaters, uh-huh. you know. And so he had only worked in New York. And Candace wanted to do it out here. Uh-huh. So we went to the Taper and the Geffen and the the Cannon, which was still there. And um, what's now the Ricardo Montalban, which, what was that called? That was called was the, a, uh, the Doolittle. Yeah. It was the Doolittle Theater on Vine, uh-huh. which was very cool because we walk in there and there's nobody there except this ancient woman who was like, a, I don't know what she was, a box office person or that, but they recognized each other and hugged. Wow. And I said, what was that about? And he said, shh, this was where Elaine and I did our show when we came to L.A. Wow. So, yeah, which was that was now, the old Huntington Hartford Theater. Yeah. Oh, was that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he must have been talking about the early 60s, and this was like right. 1999 or so. Wow. And they recognized each other after all these So years. what do you great. talk about with him, you know, when you're just, you know, <laughs> driving around, uh, <laughs> you know, what what do you, you chat about uh, with Mike Nichols? You know, just the stuff you chat about with anybody, I guess, uh-huh. uh, you know, but also the play, too. I'll tell you one more incredibly... This is this is my highfalutinous name droppy story that I have. So, one of the things that we did talk about was with the play, which, as you know, goes backwards, scene right. by scene. It starts mm-hmm. with a conflagration on a on a TV set where the star and the showrunner have a blow up, and it works its way scene by scene back in time to when they were both calmer, saner people, and right. had that sort of development first date and all the promise of what this was going to be. Uh, and we talked about the question of what do you do when you take away that basic element of drama of what comes next, right? The audience is right. always sitting there through a play, what comes next? And, mm-hmm. and now you have to go back and reset. And Mike said something that struck me as off, but I didn't know how to respond. And I wanted to do my homework. And he said, you know, it needs a bunch of reversals and surprises like Betrayal has, the Harold Pinter play, Mm -hmm. which goes backwards Mm -hmm. in time. And I thought, man, I I tried to load as many reversals and surprises (laughs) into this as I possibly could. Uh And I thought, let me go back and read Betrayal. And Betrayal only has a couple, and mine has a dozen. And I thought, okay, how do I tell Mike freaking Nichols that he's wrong? Uh (laughs) And I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And I wrote the equivalent of my best five-page college paper on (laughs) Diva and Betrayal and Pinter and me. Uh (laughs) And these are all the things that Pinter can do brilliantly that I can't. And how I, you know, potser that I am, just sort of covered up all of my shortcomings with all of these reversals. And look what they all are, you know. And I write this long, long thing to him in email. And I don't hear back from him. And I'm thinking, what a schmuck. I can't uh-huh. believe that I that I did this, you know. And he's totally off on me because he's not answering my emails. Right. After about two, three weeks, he sends me an email that says, I'm so sorry for the delay. I was in England for the opening over there of Primary Colors. I agree with everything you say. And I continued our conversation with Harold and Trevor Nunn. <laughs> and I can't wait to talk to you about it. <laughs> like, okay, I guess we're okay now. Well, how come it didn't get made? 
ultimately, uh, or how come he didn't do it? I mean, it, it did get produced a number of times, but yeah. how come he didn't direct you it? Know, it? You know, you fired just, him? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. He, um, it was very complicated. He wanted to do, we did readings in New York and L.A. with different casts. He wanted to do it with Candace. Candace was kind of newly widowed then. Louis right. Mal had died, so, mm-hmm. you know... Mike and Candace sort of had a little tug of war over, do we do it in New York or L.A.? She wanted to do L.A. where he hadn't done a play. He agreed to it, came out. We looked at all the theaters. I wanted to do the taper. He wanted to do the Geffen. I acceded, of course, to uh-huh, doing it at the uh-huh. Geffen. And then Candace was a little funny about the dates. The Geffen said they'd hold the last slot in the year, and, and they wouldn't give it to anyone else without checking with us. And then they did, assuming Mike Nichols isn't really doing a play here. Oh. So I got, in three days, this horrible up and down oh, of Mike God. sends me an email. We're on. This is the date we start rehearsals. We're all going. Candace is in. Everything's good. And then three days later, the Geffen fouled up and gave the play, gave the slot to uh. Jason Alexander. Somebody too big to take it away from. Uh-huh. And they wanted to do it the next year, but Mike was already committed then to Angels in America uh, or something, and that was the end of it. Uh, again, welcome to show business. Yeah. Every writer seems to get into the business through a different path, mm-hmm. and yours was through advertising. Yes, I had been writing and directing plays and musicals in college. Okay. Kind of backed into Where'd a Where did you go to college? Amherst College okay. in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and I kind of backed into... An advertising job, I was still writing plays, you know, on the weekends and nights and such. Um, And I, through that, met an actress named Lynn Lipton, who was a, she, I think she'd been in Second City and she was a really successful voiceover actress. Um, There was a heyday in the 80s of, of funny commercials. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. and that's where I sort of carved out a niche. I went three Clio's when I was in my early okay. 20s at the ad agency. Dick Orkin and all those yes, people. Yes, yes. And, and the cheaper way to do it was if you had some schmuck for $16,000 right. a year <laughs> on your staff who was later going to go on and have a career in right. TV and stuff. But you could get him to write this stuff instead of, um, yeah, and, and Barsman, all those guys. Right. Orkin, right. And so I was sort of doing that um within Y&R and, and the best of those voiceover actresses was trying to get back. This is, this is kind of crazy. She was trying to get back into uh, TV and have a TV show. And she had just done for the first time an on-camera campaign for a, a now defunct chain called Caldors. And she and some other actor were the Caldors couple, like the like the old Marriott Hartley and, right. and James Garner kind of right. thing. And Caldors got bought out and their CEO, who now had this golden parachute and nothing to spend it on, decided he was going to get into the TV business and take it by storm. He was going to be Grant Tinker. Okay. And somehow she gets me at age 24, 25 to go up to this rich guy's house and they get me to write a pilot. I didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> I had to buy a book to see what its, its <laughs> format was. I had never read a TV script. I write this pilot, and she says, I'm going to go back out to Hollywood, where she had worked 15 years before, and I'm going to call the nice people who will remember me and have lunch with me. Um, Jimmy Burroughs, who I think you right. had on recently, mm-hmm. um, was one of them. There was a list of really impressive people because she was really talented and had voluntarily dropped out at the, what looked like it was going to be a big career. One of them was Alan Burns. 
Okay. Who had One done. of the co-creators of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. Mm-hmm. And he read this, and I think he didn't know what to make of this. <laughs> but he said... Well, the format was right. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And, and there were some funny jokes. And he said, you know, tell this guy he can call me. And right. so I did that. And then he was very nice on the phone. And then he said, uh, if you're ever out in L.A., call me again. You know, we can meet. Right. And... When I did, which was for a commercial, it was during the big writer's strike in 88. So okay. Alan had nothing but time uh-huh. and said, well, you can come to the house because uh-huh. I'm not allowed to do anything. Right. So I, I, I went over there and I left him a much better script. I left him my best play. Right. Went home, got married, went on uh-huh. our honeymoon, came back and there were four messages on the machine. The first two from Alan, who loved the play, and the next two from ascending levels of agents at APA who wanted to sign me. Wow. And that was great. great. So you started at MTM. I, I actually had no a step before that, which was then they all signed me, but there was no work. Right. Oh, because <laughs> right? the strike because was the still strike going, was going on. going on oh. and Alan didn't have a show. Right. So this was all very nice. Uh-huh. I was like a theoretical client, but right. still working in advertising. And then um, he recommended me to Ed Weinberger, who had a new show called Dear John, which you might even have worked on. In some, uh, no, I didn't. Yeah. At some mm-hmm. point. And I was supposed to write an episode for them sold Weinberger a story over the phone from Brooklyn, waited to be sent off to script like Uh week after week. And I'm watching the show, watching the show. And then one week I see they use the best part of my story in somebody else's episode. (laughs) And I'm thinking, this is never going to happen. But then Alan got a a pilot. Alan and Dan Wilcox had a pilot called FM, which got a four order, a wild show of confidence Mm -hmm. from NBC (laughs) of four episodes. And Alan and Dan were going to write two of them and somebody else was going to write a third who was under contract. And now I realize what a leap of faith this was, but they gave me one of those four. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I flew out and I stayed at the Holiday Inn, which I'd been writing ads for, so I knew how to stay there for $49 a night. Uh-huh. And uh, brought a week's <laughs> worth of, of shirts and underwear because I thought that's where I, how long I was going to be here. Right. And, and I never went home. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah you're wearing the same shirts. I know every time I see you, you're, you've got one of four shirts. <laughs> you, you then worked on uh, shows like Home Improvement, and you found yourself on Sybil. I did. And, uh, you love talking about this. <laughs> well, the thing is that uh, it's, it's really no secret that she was extremely difficult and you had worked your way up to showrunner, so you were the guy who was basically walking into the propeller every week, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I was. I guess. I guess the the. This is what happens when we get older. The first thing I want to say is that looking back, I'm mostly grateful though because okay. I didn't have a chance to run a show before that. Right. You know, and I wouldn't have had that chance if Sybil didn't stand up and say, I know he can do it. Now, she didn't know me at the time, (laughs) (laughs) but she did say that because she had heard that from other people on the Uh staff. So that Uh was a good thing. Um, And then, yeah, it was it was a it was a very difficult show. And, you know, what what are some of the. People say, well, yeah, it's a difficult show. What does that mean? Um, Can you give me, like, some examples of how she made it hard for you? 
I'm going to frame this with sympathy too, but then I will. Okay, okay. <laughs> this isn't what you wanted, I know. <laughs> you want juicier stuff than this. But it's harder to be a star than, um, than I think I realized earlier in my life. Okay. And, and another thing that's definitely true, and you've gotten luckier on the whole with an exception or two than I have, the things which get somebody to uh, the point where they are a star, the the personality or psychological traits right. are not necessarily the same ones that it takes to carry that well. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you're lucky and you get to work for big chunks of your career with Ted Danson or Alan Alda, right. you're seeing... Oh, I'm so spoiled. Yes. I'm so spoiled. Yes. Absolutely. Right? Oh, and, I admit it. Totally. A, yes. A, a thing which Sybil used to say at the time, which she was absolutely right about, was everybody else is going to go on to other things from here. Chuck Lorre's going to have other shows. Christine Baranski's going to have other shows. Carsey Werner, Howard Gould, they're all going to have other shows. There's not going to be a Sybil 2. What she took that to mean was, I need to hold this tighter. I need to, to make sure everything is right because this is my show and my career health. Right. But in the same way that you wouldn't go, okay... Uh, I'm going to have heart surgery here. Everyone else is going to go on to other things, but this is my heart. Hand me the scalpel. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's kind of the mistake, right? And so here she was surrounded by extremely talented people and just did not have the faith that they would do their jobs well. Uh So there was constant you know, rewriting, she'd be there with a pencil, you know, on the set, you know, punching down jokes. Right, right. Because, you know, she was born with great gifts, but, you know, crafting <laughs> a joke was not, right. you know, was not one of them. Right. Now, uh, a member of your staff, in order to preserve his sanity, Alan Ball went home at night and wrote a spec screenplay, which turned into American yeah, Beauty, an, yeah. uh, an Oscar winner. Yeah. Um, what did you do to <laughs> basically <laughs> maintain your sanity through all of this? I don't know. I mean, he just hung on. I mean, he hung in there a lot longer than I did. Uh, uh-huh. He hung on till the end. I, I, you know, it was all I could do just to get, and we also had twins who were just born. Uh-huh. Three kids under four years old <laughs> while all of this was going on and working till three I'm still three envious because of, of Mike Nichols and Elaine May. So I- <laughs> <laughs> well, that came a little afterwards. Yeah. But I, yeah, I just, uh, I, I just hung on by my fingernails until the moment came. Because here, here was the thing. The show was really good. It was good. For a good. really yes. short time. Oh, by the way, I want to correct you on something, which I either read on an old blog of yours or heard recently that crossover uh-huh between almost perfect and you, you want to reframe mm-hmm. what right. that was for right. your listeners right cbs we were on either right before or after, after us we were yeah. after sybil and cbs wanted to do a crossover scene between the two shows so uh howard and i basically wrote this thing where we just kept sending it back yeah, and it forth, great. rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. So, so yeah, my, what I want to correct is that was my idea. That wasn't CBS. Oh, that was because I loved your show so much. Oh, well, thank you. And it you. was not retaining as much of our audience. We were a hit oh. already and it wasn't retaining as much as we deserved. And I said to CBS, could we, cause she's a showrunner uh-huh. and Sybil, can we do a crossover and sold everybody on it? And I knew you guys a little bit cause we had lunch a couple 
couple of times right. through Alan Burns and Burt Metcalf. Right. And you guys were heroes of mine. So that was, I was thrilled. We wrote that scene. I remember we said to you when we were faxing yeah, back, fax and back and forth. Yeah, back and forth, exactly. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, and we were supposed to do a second one. You guys wrote right. one, and I think we faxed that back and right. forth. Right, right. And... Nancy was too damn funny, and Sybil didn't want to do it. That's <laughs> really what happened. Yeah. Isn't that also the problem with Christine Baranski, that when she won an Emmy, that that sort of soured the relationship between her and Sybil? You know, I was not running the show yet at that point, so I, I, I was not close to either of them enough to know what the dynamic was or anything like that. But again, Sybil had been through this situation where on Moonlighting, Right. She was a star. Right. Paired with a romantic lead nobody had heard of who within two years was a bigger star uh-huh. than her. Bruce Willis, yeah. And, you know, that thing I'm saying about emotional toolkits, there, you know, there are people theoretically <laughs> who would go, oh, this is wonderful. I now have a hit show and this person has gotten huge. Right. Um, and, but it was hard for her. And I think. People say this this felt like a rerun to her a little bit with Christine. And, you know, you, you, you wish that would have been smoother. Christine, on the other hand, and, and I don't know how much of this was just a reaction to, you know, wanting to be different from what she saw. But that uh. thing, you'll like this. This is a good writer story. She, she was so, uh, so faithful to the script. There was one time where they're they're we're doing poor man's process they're sitting on a in a car on the stage and with lights behind to make right. it look like they're driving mm-hmm. and she's talking to the cab driver in the scene and she's saying to him and i bet all the other billies make fun of you and i'm sitting there behind the monitors going what the hell is she saying <laughs> all the other billies make fun of you and i go to look and she says it's in the script and i go look at this sure enough all the other bi-. and i realized what had happened was it's the a typo, line was right? <laughs> the line was all the other cab drivers make fun of you but at some point the ca- during the production week the cab driver's role had gotten big enough we thought he deserved a name uh-huh. the, the, they did a, a global search and <laughs> uh-huh. replace uh-huh. and now it became all the other billies in her uh-huh. line uh-huh. and i said what did you think that meant and she said i don't know but you guys are so good i figured it must be funny and i just don't get the joke and i'm gonna play it and you know that was a lot of you know know. that that shows you a big difference mash that you know alan alda tells the same story about uh, a scene where there was like some typo that made no sense but it was the larry gelbart era and so they said it that way and Larry's looking at dailies the next day going, what are you doing? What is that? I said, well, it's in the script. He goes, yeah. it was a typo. And you're Larry Gelbart. Yeah, it's a typo. You couldn't yeah. call and say, explain this right. to me. You know, right. uh, well, you know, I've always maintained that you make your own momentum. And by working on different projects, you never know where they will lead. And Sybil led you to this play called Diva, Mm -hmm. which was about a difficult actress, which led to Mike Nichols, et cetera, et cetera. You're also involved in in screenwriting. Well, that involved me in screen. That was what crossed me over, sort of like, and I dropped show running to Uh full-time screenwriting because coming in as Mike Nichols' new find, you get sent all of the most interesting projects 
and I had my pick of, you know, 10 for every one I had time to do. And I'd pick the one where I go, I can't believe they're going to pay me to do this. Right. And then, of course, they never made any of them. <laughs> so that uh, was my next Well, yeah, they, you know, development hell. But yeah. you also got on that list of of doing rewrites, you know, and we were on that list for a yeah. while. And that was a, a sweet gig back then. Very much. You know, they pay you a lot of money. You don't get credit, but you're working on films that do get made and you're working with A-list directors. And uh, it's it's a pretty nice it's living. It's nice while it lasts. Yeah, yeah. yeah while yeah, it lasts, yeah. exactly. And you were doing that, when you did that, it was sort of on the side while you were doing TV yes. development mm-hmm. or like... yes. Yeah. You know, rewrite nights and such. Right. Yeah. Right. And for me, I was doing that while I was trying to get Diva made as a movie with me directing because I realized, you know, a year or two into the feature thing that just as as I felt, I mean, it's been kind of different for you. You've had a wonderful career because you landed on you know, several great staffs. We were great very shows, lucky. Yes, you know, like, very I think lucky. like you guys and David Lloyd had, are the only ones who've had that kind of right. career that way. I, you know, I was going direct to direct, <laughs> you know, basically, <laughs> you know. Um, There's the title of, our, of your memoir. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of, of our, 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 our mutual great late friend, Jerry Belson, who used to say, uh, I used to be a script doctor at this point in my career. I'm more of a script veterinarian. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I was working on a lot of stuff and I realized the only way for me, I thought, in TV was to become a showrunner. Likewise, in features, I thought, as a director, because I would get these jobs that then they needed a director and a star. And you really were pulling to an inside straight. Right. That if I could be on the books as I was a showrunner, as a director, that I could get things made. And the ticket to that seemed to be Diva, which everybody wanted and everybody wanted to do. And we just kept going into early prep and falling out that an actor's schedule would change or a financer would pull out or something like that. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, this is just such yeah. a, a common story. You know, you, you write movies and you have these projects and they're a go, they're greenlit. Oh, they fell out. It's never going to happen. A year later, some other director finds it and wants to do it. And all of a sudden you're a go again. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a roller coaster. But they want to bring in a new writer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. you know, and we, we did the movie volunteers with Tom Hanks and it was five years and three studios wow. and three directors and uh, numerous writers until they came back to us and, we threw out all the other stuff from all the other writers, but it's just typical. Yeah. It's yeah. just typical. And there you go. Part one of my interview with Howard Michael Gould. Next week, we get into our writing process, not only his, but mine, how we come up with ideas, how we write, etc., etc. Also, the life of a screenwriter, and uh, we get into his role as a novelist. As I mentioned, uh, he's got a book coming out next week called Below the Line, and that is available on Amazon. And his first book is being made into a major motion picture starring Mel Gibson. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, John Wolford, Howard Hoffman, Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, and I will answer you back, Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. That is Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. 
Follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine, and I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Please subscribe if you haven't already. I could always use a five-star review. Thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.